Wholeness, welcome. This is Josh Dippold of Integrating Presence, and today I've got Jake Eagle with me. Jake, how's it going today? It's good. I'm happy to meet you. Likewise. And what I usually do at the beginning of these, if people aren't familiar with the format, is I throw it back to the guest and say, who is Jake Eagle and what does he do? <laughs> A small question. <laughs> So, um, yeah, my name is Jake Eagle. I have been a psychotherapist for the past 30 years and uh, was in private practice in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And then about six and a half years ago, my wife, Hannah, and I moved to the big island of Hawaii. So that's where I am now. And since we moved here, I have been doing less private work, private counseling, and I got involved in a large research project with my uh, co-author, Dr. Michael Amster. He and I did a research project at the University of California, Berkeley, uh, for two reasons. We did it during the pandemic, and we were very interested in seeing if we could help people that were on the front line of healthcare because they were under unbelievable stress. They didn't have a lot of resources. They didn't have any time. Um, so we were trying to figure out how could we help them. Before that, I had been teaching a course and Michael was a participant in that course. And in the course, we were asking, I was asking people to meditate as part of the program about 10 or 15 minutes a day. And what shocked me was how few people were willing to do that. They just said, I don't have 15 minutes a day. And so I asked people if they would do what at the time I called a micro meditation, which was 30 to 60 seconds. And it was just an idea that I threw out. And what happened is that I track results. Before I teach a course, I always do certain survey instruments. And then when it's over, I do the instruments again. And what I saw in the measurements is that the people who were doing these, what we were calling micro meditations, they were getting results that were comparable to the people, the few people who were meditating 15 minutes a day. And Michael was in the course. He was a mindfulness instructor as well as a physician. And he and I both got very curious. How could these people get such great benefits doing these brief meditations? We ended up calling it microdosing. And we recognized that what people were accessing when they were microdosing was the emotion of awe. They were experiencing awe. And so then we got very curious about what is the emotion of awe, which has been studied for about 20 years. And there was a researcher, Dacher Keltner at UC Berkeley, who kind of did the original research in early 2000s, exploring what the emotion of awe can do for people. So we reached out to him. He was very interested in our work and the results we had gotten. And after I taught my first course, Michael and I did a couple pilot projects, and we continued to see people getting these great results. And so then Dacker helped us facilitate putting on a large study through UC Berkeley. And the results were so good that it ended up in us being invited to write a book for a large publisher, which is now being translated into uh, Arabic and German and Russian and Chinese. So there's something about this that's really captivating people's attention. And I think it's three things. Um, accessing awe is a really delightful experience. You feel good when you access the emotion of awe. And it's an, it's an, uh, our definition of awe is that it's an emotional experience where we're in the presence of something that allows us to transcend our normal experience of reality. We, we go beyond our everyday, what I would call autopilot existence. Uh, the second reason this has been so popular is it only takes 10, 15, 20 seconds, which is pretty remarkable. And then the third thing is that it's a, it's, awe is called a pro-social emotion. So when we access awe, we're much better able to connect with other people. So that's one of the significant benefits. And it seems to make people very receptive to doing the practice. So anyway, it's a little bit of a long story, but that is what I've been doing for the last 
four years. Um, we had a book that came out of just uh, early in 2023. And now we've gone on and we've done another research project at UC Davis. We're still waiting to get the results, but that's where we wanted to see if the emotion of awe could help people who are suffering with long COVID. Because long COVID is a really tough, tough illness, disease, and Western medicine so far has not come up with great strategies. So we were invited to participate in a study and see if our approach to mindfulness could help people uh, who are dealing with long COVID. We're waiting to get the results on that. We'll have them very soon. Well, lovely. And that's exciting as well, I guess. The I would, for continuity's sake here, I want to um, go back and it, it, if it would be appropriate, the, the class that you two met at, um, uh, um, our course, uh, is, could we say what that was? And um, sure. yeah. Yeah. So um, the basic story is that when I was in Santa Fe doing my work, life was great and I was very happy and productive and felt good. We, <clears throat> excuse me, we moved to Hawaii and I kind of semi-retired, but I still was looking to do some work. However, when we moved to Hawaii, uh, my, my work with private clients pretty much disappeared. Um, I kind of expected I'd be working with people, but that didn't happen. And I had been the chairman of the board of a small company in New Mexico, and that went away. And I found myself pretty unhappy. And it was shocking because here we are. I'm with my wife. We're living in Hawaii, but I'm not happy. So I developed a process called Thrilled to be Alive. It was a 21-day program, and that's the course I taught, where I was inviting people to look at themselves and their lives from a different point of view. Excuse the telephone. Sure. Um, it'll stop ringing. Do you want me to wait? <clears throat> no, it, it's up to you. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I was, I was teaching this course that you pair up with a partner and you focus on things in your life that would, that would encourage you to be thrilled that you are alive and that you're having the experiences you're having. And the course was very well received and it helped me come out of my own, what I would call mild depression. And that's why I was sharing it with other people and I was doing it online. That's the course that Michael joined and it relates to awe in the following way. Part of the reason that I was struggling is when we moved to Hawaii, I was no longer getting the external validation that I was used to. And I was really having a surprisingly hard time with that. How does that relate to awe? When we experience the emotion of awe, there's a tendency to feel connected to something beyond ourselves. It's bigger than self. And so the sense of self that we have tends to diminish. And as it diminishes, our attachment to our ego, our reputation, our status, all of that diminishes as well. And so that was really helpful for me to stop looking outside of myself for validation and to connect with something at a much deeper level. And, and, and that is how the that was my experience. It's why I was sharing it with other people. And I didn't at the time, I didn't really understand a lot about awe, but ultimately the two connected. Well, let's jump into awe itself. Um, it's interesting. I've never considered it as an emotion before. And it quite clearly the way you described it, at least that portion of awe is, is a clear, clearly an emotion. Um, I, I'm sure it probably even goes beyond that. It can be experienced on other levels, like an intellectual level, you know, a mental level, maybe even a psychic level, um, physical level, perhaps. I'm not sure, but yeah, the kind of the the raw visceralness of awe uh, does can strike as an emotion. I'm thinking, you know, some of the more external experiences of all I have is in nature. You know, that's, that's obvious. I think that's one that everyone can immediately connect with just these grand vistas or just sitting and contemplating, you know, how nature comes about and does what it does. It has its own inbuilt intelligence and how sometimes we or some humans think that they can 
ultimately um, control nature, you know, maybe I'm going a little bit too, too much on a tangent here, but what I see a lot of times in nature is that it, it's such a huge, powerful force. And this is just a theory, but it seems like because of that uh, huge power, man wants to control it. And so they will do things like maybe cut down forest or micromanage um parts of the earth in the way they want to see it. And I think some of that is, you know, helpful and not helpful, um, you know, but at the end of the day, nature is going to do what it wants. You know, I don't think we can ultimately control nature. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of people doing a lot of things to, to manipulate parts of nature, but the all portion of it is amazing. So the, the emotional aspect of, of all, as it relates to nature, um, has this historically been considered an emotion? You, you, you talked about, um, Dacker Kelty. I don't know if I'm pronouncing the name right, but like, uh, I guess really briefly, or what did he draw on when he was doing his work and why was he interested in this? And what else is there to say about this as an emotion and how most people already know how to connect with awe. And then maybe we can transition into kind of what your work has added to it or kind of, um, entered into it in maybe a novel way. Yeah. Well, Dacker was looking to Dacker Keltner, <clears throat> excuse me, was looking to uh, do a, uh, a thesis when he was a grad student and he ended up focusing on the subject the, the, of awe, the emotion of awe. So he did kind of the groundbreaking research. This is, I think back in 2003 and he recognized that awe traditionally had been perceived as both positive and negative. So there was the fear aspect that could evoke awe. And then there was the wonder that you're talking about when we go out in nature. Um, what we do is we think of them really as different emotions. They both arise from something that is um, generally extraordinary, but our focus is on the positive. What, what is the awe that induces a state that is generative and healthy and constructive and pro-social? And what you described was interesting because you're talking about nature and that is the primary way people access awe. We call that sensorial awe. It's awe that we experience through our senses when we're in an environment that wakes us up. Now, what's unique about our approach, and this is what's really new, is we were inviting people to access awe in the ordinary. You don't need to go sit on the edge of the Grand Canyon. You don't need to go to the moon and look back and see the earth. You can do it when you're making a cup of coffee. You can do it when you're sitting in a traffic light. You can do it when you hug your partner in the morning, when you pet your dog, right? All the time, awe is available. If we wake up, to the things that we value, appreciate, and find to be amazing. And those are around us all the time. Now, the second thing that you mentioned was contemplating nature. And, and that's a different kind of awe that we call conceptual awe. That's the awe that we access through our mind and the amazement that we can have with a thought or an idea or a new concept. So there's sensorial awe, then there's conceptual awe. And then the third way to access awe is called interconnected. And that would be where you take an extra 10 seconds when you're hugging your partner or again, petting your dog or connecting with another human being in a way that really is rich and meaningful. So those are three different ways to access awe. In all three cases, we, we have the same basic physiological response. And the physiological response is very unique in that it's not a completely relaxed state, a completely parasympathetic state that our nervous system goes into in traditional forms of meditation. It's, slight, it's a slightly energized state. So think of it more as how you feel when you're playing. That's a quality that awe has within our nervous system. So it wakes us up. It's good for our uh, reducing anxiety. In our study, we, we demonstrated that it reduced depression, it reduced loneliness, it reduced sensations of physical pain. 
And, and one of the reasons that's true is because it's, it's altering our physiology. And there was a study done in, I think it's 2015 or 18. It was published in the journal Emotion. And they determined that the emotion of awe actually can reduce inflammation within our, within our body. And inflammation, as most people know, is a, is a part of pretty much all disease. It involves inflammation. And so the ability to reduce inflammation has significant physiological and emotional benefits. And all of this is happening every time we access all. And so what we do, and go ahead. No, please finish. Yes. <laughs> I was just going to say that what we do with our practice, which again, takes 15, 20, 30 seconds, is we ask people to do it three times a day. Now, sometimes people will do it more than that, which is great. But the idea is that imagine that you wake up in the morning and your nervous system is like a loose spring. And then as the day goes by, each time you have to deal with something challenging, the spring gets tighter and tighter and tighter. And by the end of the day, we're, we're wound up pretty tightly. When we access awe, we're releasing the tension on the spring. We're releasing the tension and we're resetting our nervous system. And so if we can do that in 20 seconds, um, literally takes no time, right? 20 seconds, 15 seconds. Uh, why not try it? <laughs> well, maybe I'll ask you here in a little bit how we might do that. And if you're willing to, to share this sure. practice with us. There's a lot of things, though, that I want to pick up or several things I would like to pick up on, too. And um, maybe working backwards here. So how does this trigger this um, effect that it reduces inflammation? How does a practice then have a physiological effect like this? I mean, I, I'm, I'm assuming that there's lots of chemicals involved here or something like this that releases, but it just amazes me so much how there's certain words and actions and cognitive processes will then translate all the way down to pain relief, right? Exactly. So, yeah, yeah we, 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 I mean, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with inflammation, but the, the process leading up to how that works, I think maybe might be a little more complex. Yeah. Well, I'll I do just mm -hmm. a kind of a, a, a simplistic version of it because you can go pretty deeply into the physiology. Mm -hmm. But our bodies produce something called cytokines, which are small proteins, and they are a signaling system throughout our entire mm -hmm. body. And again, on a simplistic level, there's two kinds of cytokines. There's threat cytokines, which produce inflammation, produce a response when there's threat or damage to our physical being. And that response is appropriate and necessary at times, but it should be an acute response that's short-lived. The problem is because we're feeling in our culture, many people are feeling threatened much of the time, we get into a chronic state where the threat cytokines continue to work through our system and we stay in an inflamed state. You can think of that inflamed state as both physical as well as emotional. When we access awe, we produce a different kind of cytokine that has been referred to as safety cytokines. So when we feel safe and nurtured and comfortable, then our body sends different signals throughout our body, throughout affecting our immune system. And now we are shifting our physiology, no different than when you sit and meditate for 15 minutes. You, you alter your physiology, you alter your brain. But we found a way to do that in this very, very brief practice. And there's a particular cytokine called interleukin-6, and that is what's responsible for inflammation. And when people access awe in the study done in 2015, they measured that the levels of interleukin-6 were lower as a result of people accessing the emotion of awe. So that's why we see a reduction in inflammation. And this was not our research. This is prior research. But what we saw in our research was a reduction in pain, which suggests that, yes, there's probably a decrease of inflammation. I see. Now, I... Just to, to, to wrap this up on the inflammation, from what I understand, there's certain t 
times when certain types of inflammation can actually help the healing process and then certain types that can uh, not do that. <laughs> right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So if you, if you sprain your ankle, you're going to have some swelling, that's inflammation. It's actually a protective mechanism. It is, is part of the healing process. It's very constructive. The problem is when we get into that kind of state and we stay there for an extended period of time, then we can actually do damage to our body if we stay in a state with chronic inflammation. Okay, now you mentioned these um, the effects that this has in the different types. I imagine this is on a spectrum too, right? Yes, um, exactly. In all spectrums. So I, I can imagine that on one end, we have people that are so numbed out that, I mean, you could go and park them in front of the Grand Canyon or, you know, bring them to Niagara Falls or, you know, have the most amazing things happen. And that for whatever reason, I mean, this is the extreme version, right? They're, they're numbed out, right? They, they're over, maybe they've had too much sensory input and nothing really does it for them anymore. They're so desensitized to so many things, so much exposure from the internet or who knows, maybe trauma or something like this. Uh, although that doesn't I really apply. Although yeah, trauma is a whole nother thing that I'm not trained in. And a lot of my things don't apply to trauma because it's a whole entire different beast. But on the other end of the spectrum, I think maybe we have what could be overly grandiose, right? Uh, I mean, this is probably quite rare, just like the, the numbed out, but can have people maybe, oh, I don't know, delusions of grandeur or, you know, extreme fantasies or something that's, that's interfering with one's life, something like this. Right. But for the most, for the most part, I guess that's at least one line of the, of the spectrum. Um, and I don't know if that's vertical or horizontal, but so what would you, where would, what would you say about this as, as on a spectrum, right? Well, I, there's two aspects to it. So sort of take the average person that's in the middle of the spectrum. They can experience awe that is very mild, just kind of sweet and relaxing, or they can experience awe that is very dramatic and intense. And we call that orgasmic. And that's where a person is accessing the emotion and they're literally feeling chills in their body and energy moving in their spine. Um, the more one practices, the more likely they are to have that kind of an experience, but it's not always the case. The, the other question you're asking about is people who are more or less prone to experience awe. And you're absolutely right that there are people who are either numbed out or they are so used to extreme stimulation that it's hard to wake their nervous system up, right? It's hard to get them off of autopilot, essentially. Um, what we found is that different people respond to the different ways of accessing awe. So nature seems to be the most reliable way for people to wake up to awe. The, the next most common is interconnected that even when you're dealing with somebody who's pretty numbed out, if you can connect with them on a deep personal basis, that seems to be the way that we get through the barrier where people essentially are protecting themselves through the defensive mechanism of shutting down. If we can reach those people on an emotional level, we can help them experience awe. And then the conceptual awe is, um, is most constructive for people who are sometimes very emotionally guarded. But when they access awe through their intellect, that's acceptable. That feels safe, right? And totally. So and this find is different ways of getting there. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And I just love this as an exercise to the conceptual awe and something like as simple as mindfulness of eating, right? Just, yes. just it's it just amazing to just consider and contemplate, uh, you know, well, there has to be a sun there and you don't, 
what a big mystery just the sun is, you know, the right conditions of soil and water, you know, um, that then there's the farmer that had to plant it and maybe they had to go and find the seed and, you know, the, the, the mystery of germination, you know, and then, and then of course, then there's cultivation and there's planning. And then once that's done, then there's the shipping off to maybe it gets stored or processed. Then there's maybe people even speculating on crops, you know, uh, and on and on it goes to to the delivery to the people that stock the shelves and and then going to the supermarket or or the, the market a farmers market and then getting that and then cooking and then m- making all the flavors and then to, and then we live on this stuff that it, it animates it helps animate the, whatever this is you know and it just all these causes and conditions that have to come together it's just in a way it's it's mind-blowing and it's it's awe-inspiring something that we just take for granted pretty much every day you know the yeah, the deeper beautiful. we the deeper we look at just the things we take for granted every day uh, and and deeply probe into them even if we're not really capable of that someone is and someone can you know with the right charisma or the right way of putting things can really bring the ordinary to life and it it it, it does seem really in, all encoded in just about everything we do if we spend the time to just look a little bit deeper. A lot of times our perceptions, you know, oh, that's a coffee table. I don't need to know anything about it. I know everything there is. Well, yeah, if that's, if we consider it that, right, the, our perceptual faculties here, um, as our perceptual faculties expand, the more access we have of seeing things in different ways, um, yeah, you know, just one other quick example that's from a meditation teacher. I like, like a, um, a, a singing bowl, you know, or meditation bell. Well, that's what most people think of it as. But I mean, somebody could have a joke and wear it as a hat. Someone could be chewing tobacco and use it as a spit tune, you know, uh, or plant a, a flower in it, um, you know, use it as a bowl. So what we normally think is just something we already know it, simple and plain, and then we write it off. Well, not necessarily. It doesn't have to be like that, right? Yeah, what you did is just a beautiful example of how you access conceptual awe. You take that piece of food that's on your table that you take for granted, and you trace it all the way back to the origins, starting with the soil and the rain, et cetera. And when we take the time to do that, it is an awe-inspiring exercise. Um and it's, it's as simple as what you just did. I mean, listening to you, for me, it wakes me up. I wake myself up when I hear that journey that the food goes through before I consume it and then even after. Yeah, so that's a great example of conceptual awe. Well, beautiful. So let's let's tap into this. Well, actually, before we, we do that, um, you're also a meditation practitioner. And so how, how does this play into your own practice? And I mean, maybe where does it fit in on the spectrum of different types of meditation practices? You know, the common ones, or maybe like a Samatha practice, this more of a concentration practice coming back again and again to an object of a Vipassana practice. Well, people have a lot of different definitions of Vipassana, basically clear seeing. It, it can be, some people define it as very simple. Some people, there's a huge long methodology and processes. And then there's kind of practices that are more of awareness-based practices, right? Noticing what's noticing, um, you know, being aware of what's aware. And so h- how does this fit into all that? And then I want to ask another meditated related question after that, okay. if you don't. Um, well, a couple of things. So uh, as full disclosure, I'm a terrible meditator. Um, I've always found meditation to be very, very difficult. I'm highly auditory, and it's really hard for me to stop the internal dialogue. Um, so always a relief to me. It was a short way to quiet my mind. And the more I do it, ironically, the better I've gotten at my sitting practice. I don't know if I can explain why. All I know is that since doing an awe practice, I'm much more relaxed on the cushion. And so it's been a compliment for me to my sitting practice. As far as where it fits into mindfulness, I think it's in the awareness realm. 
we're, in, we're enhancing our awareness. And the, the practice we use is very simple. We're asking people to notice things that they value, appreciate, or find to be amazing. All of that's based on awareness, right? Beautiful. That's the starting point, yeah. Very cool. And so now what might you say to detractors who say, well, isn't this kind of bypassing, right? If, is this like a shortcut? You know, I think it was um, said that this is known as maybe perhaps a shortcut to transcendence. But is it, it, are, we, what, are we missing anything? And then maybe how this plays into, you're probably familiar with this uh, notion in, in meditation practice of like um, sudden awakening and then gradual awakening, right? This, um, right. and yeah, how does it play into that? Or if that's even significant? I think that, um, when we use awe and it's actually, I think it's the first line of our book. We said we were embarrassed that we kind of think we stumbled onto a shortcut to transcendence. And both Michael and I have been longtime meditators. He's very good at meditating. I haven't been, but we've been doing it for years and, Neither of us really believe in shortcuts, but we actually think we came upon one. And what I really mean by that is that when I experience the emotion of awe, it's a shortcut that elevates my level of consciousness. I go from what I refer to as safety consciousness through heart consciousness into what we call spacious consciousness. It's a state of no words and no sense of time. It's, there's an emptiness and an expansiveness to it. And I can go there in 10, 15 seconds with very minimal effort, if any. So I think that's what we mean when we say a, a shortcut to transcendence. Um, it is not the same, I think, as what longtime meditators talk about in terms of their experience. There are additional benefits from a rigorous meditation practice that awe does not provide but it is a very quick and easy way to have those moments where we reset our nervous system and perspective, change our perspective. Very cool. So let's lead into this with how to do this with how it was discovered in the first place. I mean, like, was there an aha moment, a breakthrough? Was there a lot of trialing on different techniques and one of them stuck or how did it actually come about to, to develop the technique? It came about, I think there were probably three steps. First, I was teaching a course and people were having these great results. And I just started to write down what people were saying about their experience. And I wasn't really familiar with awe, although I had read Michael Pollan's book, which is, I think, called Change: How to Change Your Brain, Change Your Mind. Um, the book is about using psilocybin to advance people's well-being. Um, and in that book, he refers to awe repeatedly. So I was aware of it, but had never really thought much about it. Never, like you, I didn't really even think of it as an emotion until I got into this work. So we started to realize people were describing awe. Then Michael flew out here to Hawaii and spent a week with me and my wife, who's a very strong meditator. And we would meditate, we would go on walks, we would do variety of things to see if we could stimulate this experience of awe. And we're in Hawaii, so it wasn't hard to do. But then one morning, Michael was making pancakes and he had a moment of awe while making the pancakes. And that's when we had this epiphany, which is we don't need to go out and look at some amazing vista. We don't need to go... Uh, climb a 60-foot tree to have this experience. We can have it in the ordinary. Sorry about the phone ringing in the background. We can experience awe in the ordinary. And that was really the turning point where we realized if we can help people access awe, no matter what's going on around them, we've really taken this work and made it accessible. And that was our goal. So what did he see in those pancakes? They they weren't there weren't mushrooms in there, were there? No, I'm just kidding. There weren't no. mushrooms in there. Uh, <laughs> no, it was it was he talks about watching this liquid turn into a solid and that 
every time he'd ever made pancakes before that, he was multitasking and he never paid any attention to what happened. But he watched this liquid turn into a solid and then he realized we were going to consume that solid and enjoy eating it. And it, it kind of like you did before, it just blew his mind. And he came to the table and he served Hannah and me the pancakes and he said, this is so astounding if you stop and just contemplate what happened and what we're doing. And we all, we all got it. We're like, yeah, this is amazing. It really is. And one of the things that I've heard that I just kind of blew off, but the more I, I sit with it and realize that it, it said that the most profound thing we'll ever do is talk to another human being. And I can't even, it, it doesn't, at the, on the surface of it, it, it doesn't seem like anything because, you know, access to people is just so abundant these days, you know, but I think if, if drawing on, I think Terrence McKenna, first I heard him say, like, we're making, we're like these upright apes with, with certain amounts of hair and not, and we're making these little mouth noises and we understand each other by making these little mouth noises. Language in itself is just kind of mind blowing, you know, how, not only how did it originate, um, but, you know, our word choices of all the huge vocabulary some of us have and it just comes almost spontaneously the word choices i don't have to think okay now what word am i going to choose next you know of course you know a lot of its habit or however all this works with linguistics and stuff but it, it is really quite amazing you know trying to learn a foreign language now and that is an interesting process i'll just just leave it at that so how do you how how would you guide um you're welcome to address that but then, and if you'd like to just um, explain the process to us of how to do this. Um, I, I'll just say one thing about language because that's my background is in linguistics. And my wife and I were fortunate 20 some odd years ago to meet a couple. Their names were John and Joyce Weir, and they developed their own language model called Percept or Perception Language. And Percept is a way of using language to shift from thinking and talking about the world as if it's doing something to us, to seeing ourselves as the actor, to seeing ourselves as creating everything, including our emotions. So instead of saying, for example, um, you make me angry, I would say I anger myself. Now, it sounds very subtle. It's like, yeah, whatever. But it's actually a huge distinction if I start realizing that whatever emotional state I'm in, I'm creating. And it's also a language where you stay in the present tense. You only talk about what's going on now. So if you did something to me three weeks ago, or I, I perceive it that way, instead of going back and talking or arguing about what happened, I would stay in the present and talk to you about how I'm making myself feel right now in this moment, because that's the only thing we can change. We can't change what you did or didn't do three weeks ago. But if I tell you how I'm constructing meaning in the moment, you can address that. So it's a very powerful way of subtly altering language so that we empower ourselves. So I, I I appreciate what you said about language because it is, if you stop and think about it, it's just extraordinary, right? It, it really is. Let me, let me pick up on that really briefly because I saw in your bio where you um, are into neuro-linguistic programming. I don't know how deep we want to go into this. I'm not too familiar. Let's just address this, the, the, the precept or the, the perception, percept um, language. And this is a really important thing, I feel, especially for, you know, individuals like me who tend to blame other people um, for how they're feeling a lot of times, right? Or how I'm feeling. So this is, it's, it's um, whether it's true or not, it, if, if I'm in a habit of blaming someone for, you make me feel like this just switching that 180, whether it's true or not as an, as an, ex an exercise and just as an experiment and see how it is. I think that's brilliant. Um, now I wonder if the next step is just dropping subjects altogether, a me and a you, and just saying, you know, it, it, it doesn't accord with the English language so much, but there's feelings of anger right now, you know? 
Um, it doesn't have to be, uh, now then there's the next thing of, well, who's responsible for this? I'm a big advocate of taking self-responsibility, you know, um, do I need to blame anyone, including myself for, for what's happening? Can it just be, this is an experience happening. Does I can take responsibility for it. Um, but it doesn't, I don't need to pin a blame on anybody. I I don't feel it's a real interesting thing. And I love talking about, I don't do this as much, but talking about, um, emotions because they can't be right or wrong and they can't be argued with either. Right. And it helps, uh, it it, it helps us all uh, communicate as well. Right. Because people can really uh, connect with that. Yeah. Yeah. What you're saying is beautiful. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, I agree with you completely. One of the constructs within percept language is that there is no blame or no praise, no blame and no praise. You take that out of the equation, it changes the tone of a conversation dramatically. It also makes it easier for the person like you to take responsibility for however you make yourself feel. And sometimes people will say, well, make myself feel sounds kind of heavy. But if you take the blame away, it's simply an experience and it's a temporary experience. That's another aspect of percept that all experiences, and I know you're familiar with this, all experiences are temporary. All emotions are temporary. And so we release our attachment to them. We realize that I'm doing this to myself. You're not doing this to me. You could say something and I might get upset, but if you said exactly the same thing to my wife, she wouldn't get upset. So how can I hold you responsible for making me upset? I can't. I'm doing this to myself, right? That's really brilliant. Um, and then this is, I tell people, this is kind of a crash course in psychology by the Buddha, these worldly winds, these eight worldly winds are vicissitudes. And one of them is praise or blame. You know, the other ones are gain and loss, um, pleasure and pain and fame and ill repute. And, you know, these forces, they drive the, the lives of most people. You know, I would say the most, uh, the, the, the terminology is uninstructed worldlings, you know, which is, I think, very accurate. It's not demeaning or anything. It's just, you know, yeah, the, people are at the, at the mercy of these forces um, constantly, unless there's some kind of training and, or um, at least education, I feel. So, yep, these are very important points. I, yep. So now how, how might that uh, relate to, 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 to this practice of awe though, too? Does it, does it, can it tie into that? Yeah. So um, I'll try and connect the dots. So we have a model where we represent there's three levels of consciousness. One is safety, which is where we are most of the time. That is the one where language is most important. That's the one where we're trying to reach agreements and set boundaries and make sense of the world. And so that's where how we use language is very significant. We then go to the next level, heart consciousness, which is basically a gratitude practice. People are generally familiar with that. A gratitude practice typically involves a fair amount of thinking. We're we're saying and communicating things to help ourselves feel grateful. If we go beyond that, we go to spacious consciousness and we've accessed a state where the words and the thinking drop away. That's where awe resides. Because when we really access a state of awe, I don't have words. I actually can't convey to you exactly what I experienced. And trying to is often a mistake, in my opinion. It's reductionistic. Don't, don't, don't try to explain it. Just allow yourself to have the experience. So... Yeah. No, I totally agree. And it, it, a lot of times it does, it can do it a disservice and pull me out of it. Right. Now, later on, the, some of the beautiful poets and artists, they can point at it, but we realize right. that the finger pointing to the moon, you know, the classic Zen saying is not the same thing as the moon. But yeah, a lot right. of times if we're going to do it in language, it could only be like in poetry and, and works like this, where uh, it doesn't do it directly or try to explain it linearly, you know, and, and how we would, you know, mansplain or whatever. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. 
And then, and then the, I guess the last thing, and probably we'll wrap up with it, is the how-to. And the how-to is very simple. It's a three-step process. We took the word awe and we turned it into an acronym, A-W-E. The A, I kind of talked about, it's where we place our attention on something we value, appreciate, or find amazing. And, and you can look around and do that, or you can think of a concept, or you can think of a person you love deeply and give that your full undivided attention. The W stands for waiting. And waiting, in my opinion, is uh, deeply undervalued in our culture. And so if you think about you're going to enter into a building and somebody waits and holds the door for you, you just think about how nice that is, what that feels like. It's a certain regard that we have for another person. Well, in the awe method, we're waiting for ourselves. We're just giving ourselves space. And during that space, that's when the mind, the default mode network in the mind quiets down because we're giving our full attention to something we appreciate. We're waiting in experiencing this quiet state. And then when we exhale, we instruct people to have your exhalation be a little bit longer than normal because at the very end of that, we activate something called the vagus nerve. And when we activate the vagus nerve, whatever sensations we have in our body will be amplified. And so because I was focused on something I value and appreciate, I've waited and now I exhale, I'm going to have this it, it, it could be even like an endorphin release where I'm marinating in these positive sensations and feelings. That's the practice. It typically is one or maybe two breath cycles. Um, it can be extended in, in a book that we wrote about this. We have 30 exercises that are extended awe practices where you can carry this through an entire experience. For example, taking a shower and the whole experience taking a shower can be an experience of awe. But generally speaking, we, we suggest to people, this is one or two breath cycles, 10, 15 seconds, maybe 20. I love this. Nobody has an excuse now of not having enough time to meditate. Right. So I love these brief practices, you know, the, even these things like the, the three breath highway, right? Just be fully present for three breaths. But the yes. one thing that fascinates me about this is I didn't know this and I was just doing this uh, along um, with it and contemplating on it, this, this slow extended breath. And you're saying it, it amplifies whatever experience we're having. Could you, could you say, or, or tell me a little bit more about how the, the slower extended exhale correlates into the effect it has. So in a normal inhale, exhale cycle, there's very minimal activation of something called the vagus nerve. But if we push the exhale just a little bit, it shouldn't be uncomfortable, then we really turn the vagus nerve on. And when we turn the vagus nerve on, we're pushing ourselves into a very specific place within our nervous system, our autonomic nervous system. And it's that playful place that I mentioned earlier. And when we're there, we experience an amplification of the sensations in our body, whatever they are. And that's why if you do it when you're focused on something that you appreciate or value, it's going to be a really positive response that you have. And it's, it's relatively short-lived but it is measurable and noticeable. And it is also something that is um, part of many breath practices. It's why many of the breathing practices encourage the long exhalation. Are there any theories why this will, would um, have extra activation on the vagal nerve? Vagus nerve? Yeah, there's a whole, uh, a whole discipline around this developed by Dr. Stephen Porges. He created something called polyvagal theory. And uh, Michael and I are in a group that meets every two weeks, and Dr. Porges is part of that group. So he's been a real um, mentor for us in terms of helping us understand what's the physiological impact of accessing the state of awe. And uh, if people are interested in learning about it, 
polyvagal theory is uh, there's lots of material out there on the internet about it. And it's, um, it's been around probably 20 years and he's kind of changing the construct of how people think about the autonomic nervous system. We used to think about it strictly as the parasympathetic rest and digest or the sympathetic fight, flight, freeze. And he's presented a more nuanced understanding of how it works. And that's the polyvagal theory. And uh, had a co-host who were doing uh, Ask Us Anything, Lydia Grace, she's a body worker, and she was really big into this polyvagal theory, mentioned it quite a few times. So I probably need to get up on this now. Well, um, Jake, is there anything you'd like to, to leave us with? Tell people how they can get in touch with you if, if you'd like to do that, where people can find out more about your work, the name of the book again, where they can get it, and any events you might have coming up, any calls to action, and then any message you'd like to leave people with. Yeah, great. Thank you. I will do all of that. Um, so the book that Michael and I wrote is called The Power of Awe. It's uh, available pretty much everywhere. And um, we will be teaching a course starting in January. Uh, it'll be an online program. It'll be four sessions that take place once a week. Um, our website is thepowerofawe.com. And if you have questions for either of us and you send an email, we will get back to you. And if you're interested in perceptual language, which Josh and I talked about, I wrote a book 10 years ago uh, called Get Weird. And in Get Weird, I explain how perceptual language works and how people can start to practice that. And then I think the final thought I'd like to leave people with is that awe can be used in a very proactive way. So uh, one example is if I'm going to have to have a conversation with someone and I feel like it's potentially going to be tense or there'll be conflict, I'll go and access a state of awe before I have the conversation. And it sh I shift my physiology, I shift my emotional state, and I go into that conversation in a more pro-social manner, which means my voice is different, my breathing pattern is different, I'm more available to connect, and it makes a powerful difference to access that state before going into something that we think may be challenging. So this is a, it's a tool that I use therapeutically when people come in and they have a complaint about something before I'll ask them to talk about it. I'll say, I want to talk about that. I want to know more about it. But before we do that, I'd like to take a moment of awe. We'll access a moment of awe, come back to the topic, and their whole demeanor has shifted. And we now have a different conversation than what I believe we would have had had we not accessed a moment of awe. So I really encourage people, if you're interested in this, to think of it as a tool that you can use very proactively. And awe is around us all the time. It's just that we have become tunnel focused and awe is an invitation to widen your perspective and see the beauty and see the miracles that are around us all the time, no matter what's going on, even when things are difficult and troubling there's still beauty and, and there's still simply the miracle of being alive. So I just really encourage people to give this practice a try. It's very easy. It takes no time. Yeah. Well, beautiful, Jake. Thanks so much for joining. And may you all be blessed with the most awe-inspiring experiences. Bye now. Thanks for listening. Check out integratingpresence.com for show notes and similar material.